Isaiah 8, verse 11. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoiced at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We've got this series at the moment, helping us focus in on this God who promises, and this morning particularly his promise of a wonderful son. So as Jacob read that verse, you'd be familiar with it. It's a passage that shows up in Christmas cards, and it's a passage that shows up in three of the four Gospels, 
uh, linking this passage from more than two and a half thousand years ago to the person of the Lord Jesus. It's been a privilege to prepare and to be challenged to delve a little deeper, to go beyond Christmas card niceties and see what is it that the Lord is saying back two and a half thousand years ago and it's been fascinating to see how surprisingly relevant this passage is to our day and age. I'll pray for us and then we'll get started. Lord Almighty and our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak. Speak to us with that voice of thunder from heaven or speak to us with that gentle whisper. However you choose, however we need it, but please speak. Be that voice behind us that says, this is the way, walk ye in it. Awaken us from our slumber. Help us to understand what is at stake and give us grace to respond with believing obedience and with thankfulness and with joy. You are a good and gracious God. We worship you, we honour you, and we follow you. Amen. Now we admire people who have the foresight and the courage to take a stand in challenging circumstances. Their stories capture our attention. They stir us from our laziness. They even distract us from our distractions. Their stories can move us and inspire us to live for something more than just the ordinary ho-hum of day-to-day life. I want to tell you two such stories to prepare our souls to hear the word of God to us today. The first story comes with a photo. So do you recognize this photo? It's one of the most iconic photos of the 20th century. So your challenge is to tell me where and when and what and who. Tiananmen Square in China. 1989, June 5. What was going on? Student uprisings, and the government was cracking down. What was the man's name? We don't know. But you can Google Tank Man, and you find this photo. This was courageous, countercultural action. This was a man with two shopping bags that stopped a convoy of Chinese tanks. Without words, his actions said, run me over or stop. Now I heard the photographer describe this photo. This guy's obviously just out shopping and finally he's had enough. So he goes out on the street in front of these oncoming tanks If he's halfway normal, he thinks he's going to die. But he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. Because for whatever reason, he's lost a loved one or he's just had it with the government. Whatever it is, 
he considers delivering his message as more important than his own life. Now, that's speaking truth to power. And do you sense something stirring in your soul as you hear this man's bold conviction and action? Another story for you, far less famous, but one that I'll never forget. December 25, 2014, we were living in Ye in South Sudan. We were one year into a civil war. Famine was starting. We were running a hospital and having five to ten babies being born every day. And approaching Christmas Day, we were physically and emotionally spent. And I remember asking God for a quiet day so we can go to church with our family and gather together and remember the Lord Jesus. From midnight till 2 p.m., nothing happened at the hospital. And then at 2 o'clock, a laboring woman comes. First pregnancy late stages of labor she delivers uncomplicated within an hour or so delivers a baby boy and the midwives phoned me and said doctor just letting you know the baby has been delivered and I said what's the baby's name and they said the baby has been named Emmanuel it was an incredibly kind work of God This woman and her husband, despite all the death and famine that was around them, they declared that this child would be a living testimony that God is with us. Now that's courageous, bold faith embodied in the name of a baby and in the life of a family. It stirs your soul. So how do we stand firm, stand firm in our faith in the Lord Jesus in a day and age where it's increasingly less cool to speak his name? Now our passage today contains beautiful words, but to truly receive its encouragement, we must go beyond Christmas card niceties. These words were spoken into a particular historical context more than 700 years before the Lord Jesus. And stepping back into that particular time and place will help us see this familiar passage in its multicoloured and 4D version. Now the flow of our story actually begins all the way back in chapter 7. And we're going to approach the story in three parts, lining up with chapters 7, 8 and 9, each with a key verse and each embodied with a key character. So part one, a warning not to waver. And the key verse, if you do not stand stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now these words were spoken by Isaiah, son of Amos, in 733 BC to King Ahaz of Judah. And Isaiah was simply speaking the message that the Lord had given for that time and place and that is the voice of a prophet so let's go to Isaiah chapter 7 and I'll read verse 1 
when Ahaz was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of Israel marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Overpower it. Now, I've put a map up here to give us a better sense of what's going on. You see in the north, there is the threat of Assyria looming under an ambitious empire builder of a king. King Tiglath-Pileser III started his reign in 745 BC. And you can see over the next 30 or 40 years, this kingdom of Assyria dominated this area of the world. Now, in 733 BC, King Pekah of Israel and King Rezin, sorry, King Pekah of Israel and King Rezin of Syria, sensing this threat, they've allied together and they want to force Judah, the southern kingdom, to join their alliance. And so they march against Jerusalem in order to overthrow King Ahaz and install a puppet king in Judah. Now, King Ahaz is wavering, and the people are wavering. It's a critical time for the nation. Will they trust the true and living God to protect them, remaining faithful to him and resting under his fatherly protection? Or in fear and distress, with their eyes glancing black back and forth to the overwhelming threats on the horizon, will they rely on men? and their alliances, and their man-made strategies. When Isaiah speaks to Ahaz, he's actually out inspecting the water supplies of the city, preparing for a coming siege. Now, have you had times like this, when a threat is looming on your personal horizon? You see no way through. You ask God for help. Maybe briefly, maybe persistently, but after some time you lose confidence that he will intervene. And so you take it on yourself. You take it on your shoulders to find a solution. And as the burden weighs heavier, you start to crumble. And you fill with fear, becoming weighed down with worry, and you start drowning in despair. In those sorts of moments, we often need a brother or a sister in the faith to come alongside us, maybe to jolt us out of our whirlpool of unbelief and to say to us, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And this is what the Lord in his kindness did for King Ahaz through our courageous friend, Isaiah ben Amos. Now, verse 4 of chapter 7. Say to Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart because of those two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's how God speaks of these two earthly kings. And then down to verse 7. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. The head of Syria is only Rezin. The head of Israel is only Pekah. 
If you do not stand firm in your faith, Ahaz, you will not stand at all. So how does Ahaz respond? Strengthened by these words, does he shoulder his privilege as king to lead the people in the ways of Yahweh? Tragically, no. The Lord even offers in verse 10, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. God even offers to give him a sign, something else even besides God's word to strengthen his faith and enable him to take courageous action. But sadly, King Ahaz wavers. And even worse, he quotes scripture back to God to justify his disobedience. Look at verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. (laughs) Now, do you remember those words? The Lord Jesus used those words. In the wilderness, faced with temptation. But when Jesus spoke those words, they came from a heart of faith. When Ahaz spoke these words, they came from a heart of unbelief. He was using words from the Bible as a smokescreen to justify his unbelieving disobedience and his resistance to the clear word of God to him. And so God speaks ominous words of judgment. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. Now I've said these are ominous words of judgment. A woman will give birth to a baby and his name will be God is with us. Why is this ominous? The sign to Ahaz says this. There will be people in Judah who will demonstrate the faith that you lack. But in just a few short years, before this boy becomes a toddler, the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any that Israel has experienced since they broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And beginning in 732 BC, King Tiglath and his successors expanded their Assyrian empire, defeating Damascus, coming through these northern parts of Israel, the lands of Zebulun, the lands of Naphtali, the lands of Galilee, and then on their way to Judah killing many, deporting others, and devastating the land. When we read verse 14, the promise about Emmanuel, we quickly jump to seeing its fulfillment in Jesus. And that's true. But it also had this immediate fulfillment. It was functioning here for Ahaz as a timepiece. Ahaz, the days are numbered. What you dread will come to be in just a few short years. Yet it also has another meaning in the context. 
It's a sign that within Judah, despite the failure of its king, the Lord was, even now, building a faithful remnant. Humble people, men and women, aware that God is with us amidst the devastation that's coming and God is building a faithful remnant. People willing to take their stand on that bold declaration of faith. Remember our nameless South Sudanese mother, boldly naming her son, God is with us in the midst of civil war and famine. Now there is another son mentioned in this passage, back in verse 3, a less famous baby than baby Emmanuel, but something very special that we can learn from him. When the Lord told Isaiah to speak to King Ahaz, he told him, take your boy along. In verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son, Shear Jasub, to meet Ahaz. Now let's learn a couple of things from this. Do you consider that wise advice? That on the day Isaiah goes to speak directly to the king in a conversation that will end with a clear and firm rebuke for his unbelief. Do you think it's wise that you choose to take your son along? Most of us would shield our children from those sorts of confrontations. But can you imagine the father-son conversation on the way home? The boy has just seen his father take the prophetic word of God to the king of the land. He has seen his father love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. What do you think that would do for the young man? Make it more or less likely that he would stay true to the true and living God. Son, I'm going to make a stand for what is right in God's eyes. And I want you to be there to see it. I don't know what will happen to me, but I am ready to pay whatever price to remain faithful to our Lord. Let's trust the outcomes to him. Whatever happens... May he be honoured. There are brothers and sisters all across the world today having those sorts of conversations with their children before father goes out to pay a price of persecution or martyrdom. Now fathers, when was the last time that your son saw you do something like this. Take a stand counterculturally to do what is right in God's eyes. Now there's also a deep theological thing going on with this boy's presence. His name means a remnant will return. The boy's presence before the king was a message in itself. The word of God embodied with a double message it was a warning to Ahaz what is coming is so devastating that only a remnant of the nation will return 
but it was also for those with eyes of faith, a soul-strengthening encouragement. Despite the devastation, there will be a remnant faithful to God who will return to the land. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Let's move to part two. A family, one in faith. And the key verse in chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. So we see this shift in chapter 8, verse 11. Isaiah moves from a public context to a private one. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of, this, of these people. Now the tone is autobiographical. When we get a precious insight into the backstory of this famous prophet, a man, his wife, his two sons, seeking to be faithful and obedient in the particular time and place, that the Lord had given them life and service. Does that encourage you? That behind each of these famous men and women in the Bible is a story like this, a personal God coming to them, putting his hand on their shoulders, drawing near to them and giving specific words for their time and place in order that they might stand firm in their faith. Now what follows is a call to personal commitment, a reminder to the prophet himself that the Lord is the one that he is to worship and revere and remain faithful to. Look at verse 12. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. There's two types of fear in life. There is a fear that makes you run. And there is a fear that makes you stop in awe. The Lord is holy. He is to be feared and revered. Do you see the contrast? King Ahaz was fearful of the threat. But the Lord says to Isaiah, do not fear what they fear. Fear me. Revere me. Worship me as holy. How much of our emotional energy is wasted on the fear of what others think of us? What rich freedom comes when we simply revere the Lord. And the Lord offers himself to Isaiah to be a sanctuary, a personal refuge for Isaiah. The temple would be destroyed soon that symbol of refuge. But the Lord himself is offering to Isaiah to be his refuge, 
himself. In the Lord's kindness and grace, Isaiah himself is given his own soul-strengthening words from God. And in the Lord's kindness and grace, Isaiah is given a humble and trusting heart to respond in believing obedience. Look at chapter of verse 18. It says, here am I. Now, what does that remind you of in Isaiah? Does anyone remember where those three words come from in another chapter? Chapter 6. Isaiah, confronted in the temple by the holiness of God, ends up volunteering for missionary service. Here I am, send me. I imagine Isaiah as an eight-year-old boy in his primary school class and his teacher saying, I need a volunteer. And Isaiah saying, pick me, pick me. He's got that heart willing and available. Fathers and mothers might relate. You go to your kids and say, hey kids, I've got a job for you. Who would like to volunteer? And a childish heart says... Well, maybe. Tell me what the job is. But a childlike heart says, here I am. Whatever you've got for me, I want to do. And that's the heart of Isaiah. He is standing here. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. A man standing with his wife and his two sons. Some would say that children are symbolic of faithful disciples. The remnant that gathered around this one that was speaking the words of God. And they were standing there as signs and symbols. Signs and symbols in Israel. It reminded me of those verses in Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The Lord had gathered his remnant. They were remaining faithful to him and they were signs and symbols to the nation of Israel and the culture around them. I had a youth minister who said he always looks for young people who are fat, faithful, available, and teachable. Those young people willing to learn and grow. Isaiah was a fat man. Faithful, available, teachable. When the Lord Almighty speaks to you, Are you one of the first to volunteer? Without any conditions, without any need to find out what he's actually asking of you, are you one of those faithful ones that stands there with wife, with husband, with children, with friend, with brother, with sister, with mother, with father, and says, here am I. I'm willing. Whatever you have for me, I'm ready. 
verse 19 and 20. When men tell you to consult mediums and spirits who whisper and who mutter, should not a people inquire of their gods? You see the contrast of the whisperings and the mutterings of the false gods in the land compared to the life-giving and open and transparent word of God. Isaiah stands with a long line of believing people who trust what God says. Do you remember the disciple Peter with Jesus? And he says, where else have we to go? Because you alone have words of eternal life. But what about the rest of the nation under Ahaz, who listened to the whisperings and mutterings of these other less reliable voices? They are described in the following verses. They are distressed and hungry. They will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upwards, they will curse their leader and curse their God. Distress, hunger, discontent, lostness, rage and anger and cursing leadership and cursing God. Could this describe our nation today. It's the inevitable consequence for humanity when we turn away from the true and living God. For although they knew God, it says in Romans, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. It's what happens to sinful humanity when we turn our ear to other voices, the whisperings and the mutterings, and do not listen to the clear word of God. But in Isaiah, we see a family, a band of disciples standing together in faith. We will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. We will put our trust in him. Here are we and the children that the Lord has given us. Are you willing to be this sort of family in this day and age? Are we willing to be this sort of church, this sort of gathering of disciples and be a prophetic presence in this here and now? So let's get to part three now, chapter nine. These familiar verses where we see a wonderful work of God. And the key verse that we'll finish with will be the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So the faithful remnant gathering around Isaiah but surrounded by the unbelief of a nation, surrounded by distress and darkness and fearful gloom, They are now given a vision of the great intervention of God. For these ones, graced with the eyes of faith, it is a glorious view of a great reversal that is to take place. Darkness gives way to light. Distress gives way way to blessing. And gloom gives way to joy. Look at verse 1. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. You remember that map, the threat of Assyria came through the north, through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. The place of threat and invasion in this vision becomes specially honoured as the place of hope and freedom. Zebulun and Naphtali, the first regions to feel the force of the invasion of Assyria. Yet here they are, honoured as the place where the greatest light of salvation was to shine in human history. For 20th century Jews, you could imagine this as the town of Auschwitz in Germany being chosen as the place for a Jewish maternity hospital. It's got that sort of symbolism. Or maybe for us as Tasmanians, you could imagine a site adjacent to the Broad Arrow Cafe in Port Arthur being chosen as a counselling and retreat centre for the rebuilding of broken people. Now Galilee, this backwaters village in the north of Israel, so close to Gentile territory that foreigners have intermingled with Jewish people. And yet in this place, the Lord does his glorious work of salvation, a salvation that would be available freely for all people, Jew and Gentile, The zeal of the Lord is accomplishing his eternal purposes, making his salvation known and available amongst all the peoples of the earth. Now Matthew in his gospel picks up these next two verses and clearly links them with the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death A light has dawned for Isaiah and his children and the faithful remnants of 733 BC. They looked forward in faith. We have the privilege of looking backwards and seeing this great fulfillment in history. In verse 2 and 3, we see the benefits of this gracious and glorious work of God. Light shines in the darkness. That should give you echoes of the opening of the Gospel of John. The light of the world has come and the light shines in the darkness. There is blessing and joy. The nation enlarges. Their joy increases before God. We move on, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Two rich metaphors, a farmer working hard during the season that gets to enjoy the crop, a soldier enduring hardship and battle, now enjoying the spoils of victory. Farmers and soldiers enjoying the climax of their hardship. And the Lord blesses them in that. But how shall all of this come about? In verses 4 through to 7, we see the grounds 
of this great work of grace. In Hebrew, each verse starts with a for, F-O-R. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. There is freedom from oppression. Now, why did Isaiah mention in the days of Midian's defeat? It's a code. For Aussies, it would be like mentioning Gallipoli. Something immediately comes to mind that strengthens your soul. A story that inspires you. For the Jews, this was a culturally nuanced connection to a great intervention of God in the past to help them see this great intervention of God that's coming in the future in the Lord Jesus. It's of the same nature and of the same character. Judges 6, 7 and 8 tells the story of Gideon. You might remember that great hero. He was raised up by God in the north of the nation. There was the threat of the Midianites who were taking over the land and the people in their distress turned away from their idolatry and cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up Gideon who says but I've got the smallest clan of all the land and I'm the weakest member of that clan you see the Lord raising up an insignificant one to make it clear this work was of him You remember the story where Gideon gathered the army and God said, you've got too many men. So let's distinguish between them and ended up gathering a very small unit of people to make it clear what I'm about to do is not done by the works of men. This is done by the work of God. And the great victory that came, Gideon went into the camp, listened heard some man mention a dream that strengthened his faith, went back to his men, they blew their trumpets. The army of Midianites ended up freaking out, killing each other and then running away. And then this small army followed after this decisive victory to make the victory become more real and more expensive. Do you see all the echoes of the Lord Jesus there? God making it clear that he is doing a work that only he can do. Choosing insignificant means to bring about his great salvation events. For Isaiah and his friends, they would have heard this word in the days of Midian's defeat. Thought we know what that's like. God is about to do a great work. And we can trust him. It mentions the yoke and the bar and the rod. That would have got them thinking about their days in slavery as a nation in Egypt. And remembered again God's capacity to do a great work of salvation. (coughs) In verse 5, we see the tools of war are destroyed. For there's no more need for those sorts of weapons because of the greatness of what God is doing. And then we get to these famous verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. In contrast to the wavering faith of King Ahaz 
and in line with the bold, believing obedience of Gideon and Isaiah, we hear the promise of a wonderful son who is to be born, an ideal ruler of God's people. You notice he's born and given. He comes to us through ordinary means, the human way. And yet he's also given in a very special way from God who loved the world so much that he would give his one and only son. And the Lord Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This was a gift from a self-giving God. I want you to notice three things. His shoulders, his character, and his rule. His shoulders, we've already heard the shoulders that was carrying the yoke and the bar. But here, the Lord Jesus carries the government shoulders that responsibility, not coming for a life of ease, but willing to shoulder the burdens of leadership and doing it effortlessly. Notice his character. He will be called by those who see who he is with the eyes of faith. This beautiful wisdom of God the wonderful counselor. They see the almighty power of God. They see the eternal watchful care of a father. And they see the irresistible influence of a peacemaker. When you are in the darkness of distress, remember these verses. This is our God who was born and who was given to us. But notice his rule. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now in Australia, we are familiar with unstable government. This is stability. A government that will continue and have no end in time. In continuity with all of the promises of God in eternity past and stretching forward into everlasting eternity. But there will also be no end to his rule in space. His rule will extend to all peoples, all tribes, all languages and all nations. And what is the culture of this kingdom? It's a culture of justice and righteousness where things are as they should be, and we can rejoice in that. So how will this wonderful work of God be accomplished? We finish with this verse, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. So we've looked at three things, a warning not to waver. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. We've seen a family, a band of disciples, one in faith. I will wait for the Lord. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. And then we've seen the wonderful work of God. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. 
Be inspired remembering that photo of Tank Man in China. Be inspired to speak and be truth in front of power. Be inspired by baby Emmanuel in South Sudan and his mother and father, a sign in the darkness that God is with us. But be captivated. Be captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ and give yourself fully to him and to the greatness of his kingdom. I'll pray. Lord God, we want to thank you that you speak clearly to those who have ears to hear. And we pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts. Give us believing obedience. Give us boldness and courage. Help us to be coming together in friendships and families and clusters and teams to live boldly as a faithful remnant, as a witness to the world, offering the words of grace to all those that would see and hear and believe. Please do the work in us that we need, that we might be transformed to stand with Isaiah and with his children and to be part of that believing remnant that you've sustained throughout all of human history. We thank you for all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.